Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Joining us again is Antoine Vanderlee. Hey, Antoine, thanks for coming back. Yeah, glad to be back. So I've actually worked on projects that were written in Swift 1. And in the last year or two, have you have you worked on any of those? Yeah, lately? I think I was kind of honored to be at WWDC when Swift was announced. And, uh, you know, you're enthusiastic when it's announced. But if you're there, I guess you're even more enthusiastic to get started with it. Because you're there in that week, you have your MacBook open all the time, you try out yeah. new things. And yeah, I was at a point where I had to convince kind of my product manager to rewrite the project or not. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I know. I knew at that point Swift was the future. So I had a really good statement right. to make there. And I, I convinced them and we started writing uh, the project in Swift 1.1, which was kind of like the first really public version you could use, I guess. Yes, I'm, yes. I'm not, yep. If I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we started using that in the first week, two weeks. It was all fine and it worked nicely and we continued and we continued and the project grew. And then we realized that, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it called again? Um, incremental builds. Sorry, I couldn't get uh, to the word, but mm -hmm. you know, we, mm -hmm. we didn't have incremental building at the time, which meant that the project builds times were like, like eight minutes, nine minutes at a certain point, just for a really small change. It, it didn't work at all. Up until I think Swift 2 in, in introduced incremental building, which was a lot better already. Uh, okay, okay. But yeah, then Swift 3 arrived, which was great. But for existing projects, it was definitely not great. Uh, I'm not sure if you experienced the same, but we had to rewrite a lot of code. Yes. Because the syntax. 1 to 2 was a big rewrite, but 2 to 3, I think, was an even bigger rewrite from what totally. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, not, not even mentioning all the uh, best practices that arrived with right. the new changes, you know. So I, I never regretted the fact that we went for Swift because we were in a much better place than if we would have started writing it in Objective-C, but it wasn't easy as well. Yeah. So I've been on a few projects, actually in the last year or two, that were written in Swift 3. And I I had to add features or bugs, fix bugs, from Swift 3. And that was an interesting experience because um, I ended up having to set up a high Sierra VM and install Xcode 8, but I also had to change the calendar date because the certificate wouldn't work on Xcode 8. Uh, and then I, yeah, I had to upgrade the project to 4 on the VM. And then I ended up being able to open it on my actual machine and then upgrade it from 4 to 5. And there was like all sorts of cruft in the code of like no generics no try catch and it was like yeah it was an interesting experience having to i didn't upgrade it wholesale i just wanted to fix the bugs and get the features in but it was interesting if like just being able to like dance around it i guess <laughs> and not change too much of the old code that worked uh while also using new methodologies like a lot of like ns array and ns dictionary and stuff i was like oh my gosh this is crazy yeah but it's it's the same when you you have to work on a project that's still using objective c you know like it's it's even though you might still know the syntax you you have a small moment where you need to switch your mindset again right i, th I think the same happens right now with swift ui we we started adopting swift ui and we transfer up lately and 
it's a it's a whole different mindset and once you start writing those swift ui views you need to get started a bit but once you're in there it goes pretty well once you know the syntax a bit but at a certain point you need to get back to ui kit code and then you're like damn i need to write so many code for this simple <laughs> view you know <laughs> yeah it's a, it's an interesting switch you have to do all the time now how are you switching over to swift ui at we transfer you're doing it like piecemeal i guess well, what we decided to do is really look into like a place where we can adopt Swift UI while still maintaining support for iOS 12 because we still support iOS 12 and Swift UI only arrived in iOS 13. So that was the first decision we made before we decided which view or which part of the app we wanted to rewrite. And our designers dropped us a new introduction screen just because it probably worked better. So we had to implement that. And this was like a coincidence because we also wanted to adopt swift ui at that point so we decided to build those views with swift ui while keeping the old introduction screens available for ios 12 users kind of an easy approach um it's it's like a distinct piece of the project which we could simply rewrite while well almost not touching the old code we kind of created a, an in-between business layer which contained all the logic like opening the sign up page opening the login page um, basically methods like sign in button tapped, which we could call from the old introduction screen and from the new SwiftUI introduction screens. And with that, we, we started with full confidence on building the SwiftUI views. Um, and yeah, um, we, we wrote a, a blog post about this with all our learnings, which we can share in the show notes later. But um, if I would make the decision today, I think I would even drop... Uh, the new introduction screens for iOS 13. Because the thing is, once once SwiftUI arrived, it was iOS 13, obviously, so we can, in theory, use SwiftUI from iOS 13. But it was early days, and there were so many bugs still in there. And um, if you decide to use SwiftUI with iOS 13, you still have to deal with those bugs, even though they might be fixed now. So we ended mm, up... Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, so we ended up fixing a lot of bugs just for those iOS versions, uh, which still have quite a few users on it, you know. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a tough decision. I think if if we would write like new views today, which are quite simple, because you know our, our introduction screens sound simple, but they had a lot of animations because, yeah, so that didn't really make it. Is it like an onboarding essentially? Yeah, it's an onboarding, but the designers. Yeah, okay. uh, weren't like uh, limited. We always say just just create the best view possible, and we will see what we can do. Okay, um, okay. And, and yeah, we didn't. Well, we didn't regret it, but <laughs> it was a challenge, <laughs> um, especially with Swift UI. But it, it turned out great. But yeah, you know, how does it work of, on how does it work on fourteen? Yeah, so fourteen was much better, but fourteen dot one broke another thing. So oh boy, it, it's still not really stable, but. I guess it's also, it really depends how complicated your views are. If you use like custom alignment guides, for example, then it's a lot more complicated. Geometry readers. Um, yeah. If you, if you don't all use those things, then it can be really simple. Yeah. 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 You need a doctor to understand geometry reader, I think. <laughs> it be a it's pain so hard to get your head around it. Yeah. I'd yeah. be struggling with that one as well. But. Yeah, it's pretty useful in some cases, uh, even in in a kind of hacky way sometimes. But uh, right, right. Yeah, 
So is the idea then in like next year, you're just going to get rid of the UI kit code since you're not going to support 12 next year, probably? Well, I guess at least new fields, you know, once we have the opportunity to rewrite a field just because the design is so different, then we would definitely think about rewriting it in Swift UI just because we know for sure that one day we want to rewrite it into Swift UI. So if we mm. do it today, we make our lives a bit easier for the future selves, you know? Right. But then still it depends because if it's a really complicated field tangled into a lot of business logic we have in place already, then it might not be the best decision to do. For for example, you know, if you if you have a UI collection field with a lot, a lot of UI collection field cells in it, you don't want to rewrite that one cell into Swift UI because performance-wise, yeah. that might not be the best approach. You rather right, want right. to rewrite that whole few, all cells, all together with the header and the footers and so on in Swift UI instead. Um, and the other thing you got to think about is like, even though you might have a collection view as a great example, uh, it's only in 14 that we have something like a collection view in Swift UI. So if you're still supporting 13, you can't really like bring in a H grid or V grid or any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, you can still decide to rewrite that view for iOS 14 users only, but especially if you have a large, large user base, uh, the collector has well, multiple of millions of users. In that case, an adoption of 8% is still like a lot of users. So um, it's, it's hard to sell that to your project manager that, hey, that new view will only be available for 90% of the users because it's still a big percentage you left Yep. Without, without the new fields, yeah. And if you're like an indie developer, you know, you don't have to care about that stuff too much, but if you're, or you're, you know, you're starting something new, but yeah, if you're a product company, that's where it can become a real big issue. Yeah, you know, it, it's also like a timely decision, you know, like today you have an adoption on iOS 13, but in a year that's probably gone. So it's also thinking about the future for yourself. If you're, if you're an indie developer, you're likely want to do the, development in Swift UI just to make it easier for yourself uh, and care a bit less uh, about that lower adoption rate. Mm -hmm. At least that that's my opinion, how I would look at it because, you know, as an indie developer, your time is really valuable and you might not have the time to really maintain old fields as well. So, yeah, recently I've dealt with an issue on the watch where uh, there's like a weird archiving issue with watch apps for 32 bit watches it essentially crashed on watchOS 6 on 32-bit because of the way archiving was set up. And I had to figure out a specific build flag for it. And it's like now I'm like, is it really worth supporting watchOS 6? Like, yeah, I'm not I'm not so sure about that. So, yeah, I'm facing that same, same conundrum myself. Yeah, you know, you can only spend your time once. So you need to be careful with, with your decisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them about their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors from how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With App Figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with App Figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. 
Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, AppFigures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk, but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes, and try AppFigures for free. If you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. Now, uh, going back to that onboarding, now, what's your plan as far as like transitioning out of the UI kit portion of that onboarding thing once you stop supporting iOS 12? Yeah, you know, the, the introduction screens, it, it took a lot of time, but they are now really stable on all iOS 13 versions and iOS 14. So we're kind of in a place where we were able to just keep on supporting iOS 13 for as long as we want. But as soon as we uh, we drop iOS 12, we obviously remove and delete the uh, the old the old logic and the old code and yeah do you use any swift attributes to deprecate parts of your code so that way developers understand you know don't use this or if you do use it understand it's going to be going away very soon or like how do you deal with that kind of stuff yeah we have two ways of doing that sometimes uh, deprecation warnings indeed uh, but that, that's more for like logic that you're likely to reuse on multiple places Whereas calling the old introduction screens, that's not really something you would do at multiple places. So a deprecation warning wouldn't really help a lot right. there. Right. But what you can do is you can be smart with the availability APIs and throw a warning. Yeah, you know that the hashtag warning syntax you can use uh, to yep. create project warnings for yourself. That's uh, that's often something we like to do. Um, but I guess if you if you use the availability APIs and you start dropping a certain version, you can just search on that availability API and basically remove all the code that's in the else statement. Right, um, right. That's that's basically the approach we use now. And there's a few places in, in, our, in our code, which is kind of like the generic business logic. I think we have, we, we just adopted different data sources and we have some old implementation for iOS 12 to support reloading cells in a fetch results controller. It's quite detailed, but I know that we use a deprecation warning right there um, just because we use it in multiple views and that way we automatically get like warnings from several places and we know where to where to update it. So yeah, it's a, it's a case-by-case thing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So over the summer uh, after WWDC, you wrote actually some uh, really good blog posts on logging um, and dealing with with bugs and things like that. I'm not super familiar with, and I don't know if a lot of people are really familiar with how OS log works, but maybe can you explain briefly why folks should be using OS log over just debug print or print? Yeah. So honestly, if I, if I write my own projects, I don't uh, really set up OS log because it's, it feels like a bigger step to take than just using print. But mm-hmm. if you're really looking carefully on what are the benefits of using OS log, uh, there are there are a few, and I didn't really look into the latest features regarding it, but I know for sure that you can use the console app, for example, to read out logs, okay. uh, which can which can be useful in certain debug sessions. And other than that, it's uh, more performant than prints, and it's it's probably not something we will encounter that fast in in regular applications when using prints. But yeah, you know, if you have to decide anyway, then you can 
maybe just use OS Log instead. And within the collector, we we created our own kind of like convenient class with categories. So we can really like filter out on certain categories when we run our code and we log out print statements, uh, which makes it kind of like a more convenient way. And at the time, um, I think we started trying out Coco Lumberjack. I was really in favor of using it because I was just used to it. But we really didn't want to add another third-party dependency, which is why we decided to use always log, which is kind of like the native available API similar to Coco Lumberjack, where you also have those log levels in place. So, yeah, I, I guess that's that's how we look at it. Now, how how can you find your specific app logs within console? Yeah, so you have to filter out based on your bundle identifier, and then you can also filter out on the certain log levels, so on on like the error level or the debug level. Um, and that way you will only get the print statements of that yeah, the things you really want to see. And this is available Mac OS, iOS, watch OS, yeah. pretty much anywhere you can you can filter. You can pull these logs up in the console. Yeah, yeah, as far as I know it is. And there are even like further steps you can take. I think connecting like a device say a colleague in the office has a certain issue on their device. And I think it's even possible to read out certain logs through the console app by just connecting the USB um, connector. Um, I, I really didn't use that often. Yeah, that's maybe interesting to point out as well. We created a framework called Diagnostics, which uh, collects all the log statements in your app. And it allows users with an issue uh, to just press a button in your app and it opens uh, the mail composer with an attachment and in oh, the nice. attachment file, you have a whole diagnostics report, including user defaults, core data, specific data if required, all the log statements, any crashes that occurred. Um, it's a pretty nice format in an HTML file with a, like a, an HTML menu as well. So we, uh, we often get reports from real users uh, that press the, the send feedback button uh, and it gets reported through our support team. And we get a lot of details about the user already based on the log statements we have in place. So, uh, yeah, I guess that that took away reasons for us to use the console app nowadays. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still possible. Yeah, that's awesome. The other blog post I want to talk about is one from last December about uh, your four tips to make it easier to fix crashes and bugs. Because I know, like. If you're updating an app, especially when we have an app that, oh, we found out it doesn't work in iOS 14, can you figure it out? Like, um, and I've had those before. Um, what what have you found is like some successful ways of figuring out where those bugs are coming from or how those crashes are happening? Yeah, so actually in the blog post, I also talk about diagnostics. So that's uh, maybe a pretty interesting entrance point for, for users that, uh, for listeners that want to know more. If I look at how we solve crashes nowadays, um, there are a few steps I take. We're using Firebase crash reporting, um, but tools like Instabug do the same where, where you get like the last analytics events before a crash occurred, and that already points you in the right direction. Then there is also device statistics. So is it happening on iOS 12 only? Sometimes that happens, or is it happening on an iPad only? Um, that can really point you in a certain direction too. And then I start to look into the code, you know, like, can I, based on theory, see what happened there? Um, and if not, I try to reproduce it in the app itself. 
And then sometimes uh, it's very easy to reproduce it. And I can start writing a unit test that reproduces that crash because I want to make sure that the, that crash doesn't occur again. So right. I want to yeah, exactly. a unit test for it. But sometimes uh, it even happened today, this morning, I uh, explained to our QA engineers, we have a whole team of uh, testing people that, that run like smoke tests um, every now and then. And I asked them like, hey, um, I got a crash related to receiving transfers. It should be around there. Any of those views, did you happen to have a crash when you were downloading content? And sometimes they, they can tell me, yeah, I coincidentally had that and I had to do this and this and this. But sometimes they didn't and they will start testing themselves and try to see if they can find it in a certain way by doing all kind of like edge cases. But yeah, that's that's basically the approach we take to to solve it. And once we solve the crash, that's important too. In all those crash reporting tools, even in Xcode itself, you can mark a crash as fixed. And that way you will tell the tool like, hey, whenever this crash occurred again, show me a notification and let me know because probably didn't fix it yet. So I have to take a look again. Awesome. And we'll have a link to both those blog posts in our show notes. Before we close out, we both will be at a conference coming up soon, as much as one can be at a conference in 2020. Uh, We'll both be speaking at NS Spain. What are you going to be speaking on? Yeah, so lately I've been writing a lot of blog posts around core data, um, which is kind of like the way I prepare for my talks. I try to combine my time preparing the presentation by writing about the same. Yeah, Um, same here. Yeah, so what I'll be speaking about is core data best practices. And, you know, I I took kind of like a benefit from the fact that we need to pre-record it. So I decided to make fun out of it and without giving away too much. But uh, I'll be not alone in the presentation. I'll be speaking together with somebody else. And uh, I also decided to really uh, yeah, go deep and create some uh, custom introduction screens, uh, do some things with audio. You know, I, I had the chance to combine a few, uh, few of my uh, previous hobbies, which is video editing and audio editing, into yeah. creating an awesome recording. So uh, yes. you make it really hard to concentrate now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So sorry, for listeners, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm looking at like a, a futuristic. Shh, uh, shh, okay, okay, okay. Spoilers, spoilers. Because my my talk is Swift uh, Swift package management, dependency management of the future. So oh. I spent a few bucks on what I'm wearing right now. So I won't say <laughs> I won't spoil it. But uh, if you uh, attend NS Spain, you'll check me out in this cool cool you wanna, pair. Of, you, uh, you don't want to miss this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> super cool apparently like yeah it has a lot of buttons there we go okay but this is so nice it's so aligned with with the house style you know uh, i'm not Great. giving away too much but i i get what you're doing here yeah 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 so yeah um yeah so this will be my uh this will be my 10th 10th talk this year this year yeah yes wow yeah that's impressive uh and i think like two of them were in person yeah. All the rest obviously are video video. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it. it. seems like I'm excited to talk about Swift packages. And like you said, it aligns with a lot of my other talks because they all have to do something with Swift packages. So it's, it's kind of a good, good cap to the end of the year, I guess, or good capper. Um, but I'm really excited to talk about that. It's, it's funny. You're talking about core data. There seems to be a big, I, I think Donnie's wrote 
uh, a few posts on Cordata as well. And we did an episode recently with Aaron from Automatic about Cordata. But there seems to be a big um, research, I guess, an interest in Cordata, um, which which is really interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, Donny is a big friend of me. He's also uh, from the Netherlands, and we uh, we often speak about Cordata. He's writing yeah. a, a new Very book good. on it, which is right. Right, is it? Pra- it's practical Cordata, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that that yeah. yeah promises to be a really good way of starting with Cordata if you didn't do that yet. But um, yeah, you know, I think over time Cordata really improved, especially in the early days of, of Swift and stuff. Cordata wasn't really really well particularly good. But things like the NS persistent container, um, uh, persistent history tracking, those really solved a few big problems in Cordata we had at the time. And and nowadays it's much more, yeah, convenient to use. I guess the only thing I really hoped for during this WWDC, and I guess I'll do that next year again, is is more like a Swift version of it. You know, we we still have to interpolate with a lot with Objective C code, which yeah. which which isn't really nice, but. I've actually looked at a couple of, you know, maybe offline I'll send you some libraries I've looked at for doing core data in a Swifty way. Cause I just hate dealing with what is it? XD object model files and all that stuff, especially going back, especially talking about Swift packages. I'd rather have my, my, my stuff all in code and doing it that way. So maybe offline I'll send that to you because yeah. I found some really interesting libraries that like kind of refactor that into more of a coding format, similar to how like Swift UI removes storyboards in the same way like just being able to get that all in code the thing is you know i i've seen those libraries probably and, and there's also this discussion uh often to use realm and, and you know the bad thing is in my opinion is that they're all third-party dependencies and you, you which take yeah a... <laughs> we already talked about that with react swift and the yeah, issues there <laughs> but you, you know we're now talking about user data and you take a really big risk of using a third-party dependency um, especially if it turns out to be the wrong decision where you have to migrate all the local yep. data from a user, which comes with all kinds of risks. So yep. I'm much it's rather... That's a totally fair point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd much rather use like a battle-tested kind of older version core data uh, than a fancy third-party dependency, which might not work out as good as I hoped it would. So, Especially if Apple yeah. Sherlock's it, uh, essentially, and yeah. come up with something better that's, that actually works, which, God willing, I hope maybe 2021 will get core data m- migrated fully to Swift in some declarative way. I hope so. I'm pretty sure they're already building something. I would be surprised if they're not. Yeah. And if people want to uh, watch Antoine and I speak about core data or Swift packages, you definitely want to uh, go to nsspain.com, use that promo code Empower Apps to get 10% off. Um, and it's going to be, what is it, like 36 hours of talks? So it will be yeah. a lot of talks. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Anything else you want to mention before we close out? Well, I think if anybody wants to discuss any of the topics we discuss now and uh, share opinions, feel free to reach out on me uh, to me on Twitter or on my website through email. Um, yeah, and I'll try to reply as soon as possible. We'll have that info in the notes, but go ahead and I'll let you say say the names. What's your website and Twitter handle? I actually let me try. You can find Antoine at swiftly.com. No, no, no yeah, that- that's that hurts. You know, that hurts. <laughs> oh no. No, yeah. Evanderly.com. Maybe the person, the owner of Swiftly.com is listening and can can sell it to me because I really tried to get both 
swiftly.com and the Twitter handler swiftly, which is also not in my hands. How about swiftly.nl or is there, is that available? Or I don't know how that works in the Netherlands. You know, I already built up name for a vendorly.com. So I'd rather go to the right destination swiftly.com or stay with uh, a vendorly. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the same for my Twitter handle, which is uh, TwanNL, uh, which is kind of odd as well. It's from the old days, but uh, yeah, some people know it by, uh, <laughs> by themselves. So I don't really want to change that easily. <laughs> I, I totally understand. Trust me. You know. And then I know, I know the Twitter handle Twaddle. Yep. T W A N N L. Did I get that right? Yeah. I, I've yeah. never done the, I've never done the info of the guest. I've usually let the guest handle it. What am I missing? <laughs> You're on GitHub as well. I can tell you a short, short version uh, or short story about my Twitter handle because you know, I really tried to get swiftly. Uh, I started to research who was the owner, you know. So I found out the name and I went on LinkedIn. I went on Facebook. I tried to contact him through his email. Uh, it's it's some kind of guy living in California. I even know somewhere where its uh, city is. But, you know, you don't want to go too far. But I really tried <laughs> to get the Twitter handle. He's not been active since 2009. And I'm like, come on, I can really use that handle. But, <laughs> <laughs> so sad. <laughs> and if you're if that gentleman is happens to be listening to this podcast come on come on for antoine uh, come on I'll, gi- please. I'll give you some swiftly merchandise I promise. <laughs> <laughs> a swiftly coffee mug come on yes <laughs> we'll have all the info to antoine uh in our show notes folks can find me on twitter at leo g Dion. my company is bright digit if you have any questions for us or any feedback on this episode be sure to reach out to us. Please do give us a review in Apple Podcast and Google Podcast and Spotify. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you, Antoine, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. See you in Spain. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs>